Podo. You're listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is sponsored by Judge Nick Mostyn's Old Chambers and by the generous contributions of private donors. Hello and a very big welcome to Movers and Shakers, the podcast about Parkinson's. My name is Paul Mayhew Archer. We're recording this in the pub as usual. And this week our subject is the embarrassing stuff. And by the embarrassing stuff, I mean the aspects of Parkinson's we'd rather not talk about, such as constipation, erectile dysfunction, dribbling and drooling, gambling and hypersexuality. And when I first said I wanted to do an episode about these things, my fellow movers and shakers all said, you're on your own, Paul. So let's go round the table and find out who else is here. Rory Kettlin-Jones. Gillian Lacey-Solomar. Mark Mardell. Jeremy Paxman. Nicholas Mostyn. You all sound desperately enthusiastic that you are here. Well, we thought you, you, you would want us to describe our symptoms. Well, <laughs> I, it would be good for you to do that. A I reason, dribble a lot. <laughs> dribble, I dribble a lot as well. I and mean, the reason for doing this episode is to reassure people with Parkinson's that none of us is on our own. Whatever embarrassing symptom you have, others will also have it. The other reason for doing this episode is to tell the rest of society how difficult this bloody illness is and how much help and understanding we need. So, if anyone wants to talk about any of these symptoms, I can say that to get the ball rolling, one of my Parkinson's symptoms is that I cannot get an erection unaided. I need Viagra, and luckily it is safe to take Viagra until another symptom, memory loss, sets in. (laughs) Because then I might take a tablet, having forgotten I took one ten minutes earlier. <laughs> having forgotten I took one ten minutes earlier. <laughs> having forgotten I took one ten minutes earlier. <laughs> and also, I do get dribbling and drooling, and I have a lot of it. And um, I'm afraid to say it, the overproduction of saliva, which I get. And I've read about this, and it says there's a treatment. Anticholinergic drugs work by inhibiting cholinergic parasympathetic and postganglionic sympathetic activity. And try, to say, and try to say that without dribbling a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, and has anyone else got no any idea what you said? Well, a friend of mine who's an old, very old friend, but he lived, lived in Australia for a long time, he said, Mark, when we get to you our age, you can't waste an erection. Or risk a fart. <laughs> and I hope that the constipation that comes with Parkinson's would mean that I could risk a fart, but you still can't, really. Constipation is a dreadful symptom. It I is. always thought in the past, because I never used to get it, and I thought, well, if you just can't do it, just don't bother, but it's just painful, it builds up. It's just horrible. It is It's even given me a new nickname, because the grunting noises I make when I'm trying to go, I oh. said I'd be graphic. Yeah. It's made my wife give me a new nickname, Herbie, because she thinks I sound like a herbivorous dinosaur. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anybody else? with? Well, I'd like to chime in here, yeah. but, but I'm incredibly grateful to, to Paul because he has um, 
He's trumped us all. I mean, I have several of the symptoms which he describes, but I think you've spoken for us. <laughs> the thing is, with the constipation, it is just absolutely, it is terrible. It is a literal pain uh, in the arse. It is a literal pain <laughs> in the arse. <laughs> oh, it it's, it's awful. And it Why is it? always embarrassing to talk about it because just the other day I was with some people at some do, I can't remember where it was, but there were three of them and I was chatting. And as soon as I used the phrase, open my bowels, they all in instinctively <laughs> took a step backwards. Of course, of course they did. Because it's just not well, something... Well, why on earth did you mention it? Well, because I, I, I don't know, really. I just, Isn't it interesting, the two sort of core subjects of British basic humour, sex and toilets, are the embarrassing bits, aren't Yes, they? and we don't like talking, and yet we should embrace talking about them. OK, go on, I'm going to say something then. Yeah. Not about erectile dysfunction. Goodness, um, you don't suffer from that. I don't suffer from that, no. But the constipation thing. I have actually had lessons in how to go to the loop. Wow. Goodness yeah. me. And what? they were so effective, I could almost tell you how you did. Because <laughs> it on, is tell us, Nick share is the, shuddering. Share the, share the secret with us. I'm just wondering how I phrase this. Oh, go on. Exactly. Before I start, let me just say that the constipation, because I didn't even know this, has a double effect. Partly it's unpleasant, blah, blah, blah. But secondly, like for me, you know, I can't eat properly because it, the drugs are not absorbed. My drugs are also, it turns out, not absorbed because of the constipation. Because nothing can, you know, get through. So therefore, you know, it has this huge, huge importance. And it was only at that point that I said, OK, right, I'm going to go along and have this lesson. It just sounded horrendous. What's it billed as a, the lesson? It's it's a specialist nurse, not a Parkinson specialist nurse. It's a specialist nurse in gastroenterology, I think. Do you all sit on, you sit on a cruise? <laughs> it's one to one. It's, there's not a whole class of people doing this. <laughs> no, it's very very <laughs> much not a whole class. Actually, I ended up taking Oscar, my son, with me, which was, I think, a bit of a mistake. <laughs> poor Oscar. Yeah, poor that, Oscar. That is childhood. Oh, poor Oscar. How old was he at the so time? Oh, no, no, he was. Third year medical student already, so I thought it might be. First of all, I don't know if I can say this bit, but first of all, um, they use a small balloon, which you can imagine. I'm finding it quite difficult to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Small balloon gets inserted and they see various things because of that. But then the lesson itself is what happens is a specialist guy who is just so sort of normal about it all, you know. It is perfectly normal. Yeah, of course it's perfectly normal. It's just not as we're all finding normal to talk about it. No, it's not. No. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've withheld the fact that I get letters every week virtually from a former colleague who has Parkinson's. and The main symptom is constipation. It's rubbish. It is rubbish. So the balloon, well, the balloon was just to tell how hard you push and this and that. And that was unpleasant, but not horrible. But the, for me, the really useful bit was what they said. So they said, you sit on the loo, OK? You sit straight, and then bit by bit, you push your tummy out. You breathe out and you push your tummy out, and that's when you press. And you do that several times, and the effect is just miraculous. So it's about timing. It's oh. about timing, and it's about, it's about not straining, and it's about... You it's probably about having a up. strong core, which they well, tell you about in exercise. Be, but if you just push your tummy right out, I mean, don't do it right now because <laughs> do that, that would that, be an embarrassing episode. That might be an embarrassing episode if we all had little results to take home. And I think the other important thing is that there is such a person who teaches you. Diet does make a difference. Diet can make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Right. And drinking yeah. water. 
Yeah. Drinking, drinking, water. drinking <coughs> lots of stuff is very important, particularly important because the muscles, it's your yeah. bowel, the muscles in your bowels. Drooling is embarrassing for another reason because it's the kind of stereotype of sad old man and mm. you find yourself doing it almost unconsciously and then are suddenly arrested by the, the sight of somebody looking at you aghast. I, I am drooling more and more now. And but you're lucky to be drooling in this sense because I had a period of no, no saliva. It had completely gone you can hardly speak. Yes. Talking to somebody the other day, an, an older lady, even older than us, I mean, she was saying she was embarrassed to go out and eat because she found it difficult. I mean, she wasn't sort of being really terrible about it, but, you know, she said she might slop her food a bit. And so didn't go out to dinner with friends, let alone go out to restaurants. Mm. And I think that's the sort of thing. And I said to her, you know, they just got to put up with it, really. You, yes. you know, I eat with a spoon sometimes at home rather than a knife and fork. So I find it easier. It's sort of not, it's not as embarrassing as some of the other things one could talk yes. about. But it's it's sort of thing that I think people just have to get used to. That's what you are now. Because um, talking about the constipation, there was one occasion, I remember, I thought I was going to die. Because I literally could not get it out, and it was just. George the Second did die. Did he? Yes, in the privy. Straining, straining at a stool. Straining at a stool, and his last words were, "Is this death?" Bang, and he fell off. Well, that's oh. cheering. <laughs> ah. Always good for a, a, an anecdote. The judge. Yes. <laughs> Should read us your the poem. Okay, I'm going to read you a poem which I didn't write actually, but which is written by Martin Pickard, who we've had on the program before talking, who is hilarious. And this is called A Chance Encounter by Martin Picard. She says, you're looking well. Inside my mind, I check myself out. I forget what I heard five minutes ago. I can't recall things that I used to know. Anxiety, apathy, doubt, indecision, compulsive behaviour, paranoia, depression, the nightmares, insomnia, hallucinations, the stiffness, the slowness, erectile dysfunction, the shaking and twitching, severe constipation, the words I forget and the lost concentration. I tell her, oh, you know, I have good days and bad days. <laughs> Very good. And also, one of the other embarrassing things is, is gambling, we're told. Now, I don't actually gamble. Well, I didn't think I gambled, and then as I was thinking about it, in the broader sense, I do, because having my DBS operation was a sort of gamble. Yeah. I'm aware that I've become more reckless. Have you? Yes. What genuinely. other examples do you have of being reckless? Well, I, I just... Do things without thinking of the consequences. You have an extra half pint of bitter. I do, and I just don't, and I don't worry about it. You only live once. Don't you think that's a psychological effect rather than sort of anything of the drugs? Well, it or might, it might be a psychological effect, but, but, but to come with it comes with Parkinson's. Yeah, but I mean, I think having a degenerative, incurable condition does make you a bit more carpe diem to cause. Ah, go. Does anyone else have any of these? Anything like that? Well, I have shopping addiction as well, if we're talking about addictions. Yes. Oh, do you? Yes. What happened was I was just buying more and more stuff I didn't need. But I always check with Mike, does he think this is OK? And, you know, if it's 10 quid here and there, he says, fine. I bought a pair of jeans for 20 quid or something. They were, they were not expensive, but I didn't tell him. It was the first time I hadn't told him. And the consultant went absolutely bonkers. And he, he humiliated me so much. He said, you cannot do that. And this is the beginning of a long, you know, slope in your front. of jeans was the beginning of... Yeah, yeah. I think they've got to be in their bonnet because they know they'll get into trouble. And I don't know, it's a very serious problem. It was problem. just so... But it's, it's so annoying. It was they... so annoying. You know, next time when they said, have you bought anything? I went, nope. Next time, have you bought anything? Nope, nope, nope. And then after about six months, I felt comfortable. I, I started saying again, but they have to be careful, I think. 
But it is, it is slightly embarrassing that you can't stop yourself buying stuff. But I've been told well, that eggs are very bad for me. Uh, chocolate eggs. is very bad for me. And I eat more and more chocolate. And I have more and more well, eggs. What's this I'm, thing about I'm, chocolate I'm, being bad for you? No. Well, I no, don't, but milk chocolate bad. is bad for you. You know, I mean, it's not that embarrassing. But I am doing more of these reckless things. Well, I think know. if you think chocolate is Paul, reckless, you're not reckless, that's no, not... No, that's no, not trust on. me, you're not reckless. No. No. You're normal. Okay. Yeah. Well, none of us are normal anymore. Well, I don't he's think. not. We are normal right. in having Parkinson's. No, we're not normal in that sense. Well, we, we've mentioned hypersexuality. I mentioned <clears throat> at the start as a symptom, and recently Gillian, Roy, and I met up with a married couple, Kirsty and Jason, to hear their story. It's a story once heard, never forgotten. So Kirsty was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 27. 27. Initially, a year before her diagnosis, she was actually sort of fobbed off by the clinical profession and said that she had psychological issues that she needed to deal with. So it was a bit off-putting, but nevertheless, we continued with, you know, seeking some further help. And as I say, a year later, she was actually diagnosed with, with Parkinson's. And I think at the time, we certainly didn't know what to feel. We didn't know whether we should feel any different, whether you should do anything different. We didn't know anything about it, apart from you've got Parkinson's, thanks very much, and see you in about six months' time. Here's some tablets. Here's a couple of patches. Off you go. Over a period of time, it became very apparent that although the clinical staff that she was under were trying their best to do everything for her and manage her condition, it was very apparent that they actually had very little experience in the field with people with young onset Parkinson's. To cut a long story very short, what happened was that the medication that Kirstie was prescribed actually changed her dramatically. It changed her personality, it caused her to have some mental health issues, and it sort of escalated to the extent where Kirstie actually left myself and the two children for approximately 18 months. And in what way, Jason, do you think Kirsty changed most? One of the sort of like the early signs was is that she she could never sit still. She had to do something. And actually, as silly as it sounds, like the, the obsession started really by going shopping. And it wasn't excessively buying anything expensive necessary. It was actually, you know, going into a charity shop and just buying things that were completely unnecessary. And I think her her whole personality, if you ask all of the people in our group, what is Kirsty like? She's a lovely, bubbly person. To see that sort of bubbliness taken away from her and becoming quite withdrawn from everyday living was really hard. It was like living with Jacqueline Hyde. There was one one encounter that when when Kirsty used to come back here to to see the children, she actually nearly stabbed me with a knife. Oh my God! Completely not within her character whatsoever. I was just angry, and my pulse was racing, and I was raging, and I was in a really bad place. I really wished, in a way, you'd have filmed me, because I can't remember any of it. I can't remember how I was, and my children trying to tell me, and it, no, I can't remember any of it at all. So I became fixated on this guy, on a gentleman, and obviously I was staying with him, and then it was quite a toxic relationship. He was actually married, but not separated, and he had young kids. And then I moved into a little place, couldn't afford that. So then I moved into a guardian property. They put people in them to prevent squatters from coming in. So I managed to get myself a little two-bedroom flat 15 minutes away from our main house. I was up all night. I was doing decorating, painting. I couldn't shut off. I, I was constantly on the go. My brain was just working overdrive. 
I still worked. I was working in a in a health centre, so I was quite focused on work, which I think kept me more sane because I had commitment and responsibility. And how do you feel, Jason, during this period? The most of the male population in a situation where their wife or partner has disclosed that they have, you know, another relationship with somebody else would probably just completely disregard them and cut all ties and all sorts of things. But because I knew that this was not the Kirsty that I knew, this was someone that she's morphed into all because of the medication, I wanted to stick by her. And a lot of people, I think, trying to explain to people about what had happened everyone's immediate thought was that's it you just need to divorce her and even to even to the extent like close family it's really hard to try and explain the situation Mm -hmm. and there was another step in all of this as well and you know people have called me really stupid but I did something I wanted to meet this guy that Kirsty was with I actually invited him round to our family home to have dinner god knows what I was thinking at the time but I really wanted to explain to him this is not the woman that you can currently see. He came and he was here for about an hour and a half. And he realised, I think, at some point, shit, this is not the fairy tale that I'm living here. I think in a way, I'd like to think in a way that it made him realise that actually what he was doing was completely wrong with his wife. And, you know, it sat at home with his children at home as well, of a similar age to our children. But I thought, no, I need to have the balls to actually, you know, do this and actually say this is what the situation currently is the thing was i kept telling them i didn't feel right and it was getting to the extreme where i felt like i weren't being listened to so i I kind of rebelled and just thought i'll have to just manage this myself so my very close friend luckily she paid for counseling for me and it wasn't until that time that she was saying you have got mental health issues however there's something else contributing to it and then that's when i saw my specialist and i said i need help I need help. I can't do this anymore. And that's when I said to him, I think I need more help from a neurologist who specialises in someone younger because my brother has also got Parkinson's and he was diagnosed at 21. He was put on apomorphine, loads of medications, and it actually happened to him, but not to that extreme. And that's when Francesca took me on. So what happened then? Francesca is absolutely amazing. Each of her consultations with her patients is 60 minutes, which is just invaluable. She wanted to strip Kirsty straight back. But even that process in the early stages yeah, was really difficult because you can't just stop, you know, 16 milligrams of that patch. You have to, you know, titrate it down and down and down until you get to a level where you can cope. It really was a challenging time. But she determined, she explained everything to us. She had a fantastic team around her. She said, I want to bring you to Sardinia. Because in Sardinia, we run a Parkinson's retreat for younger people with Parkinson's. And we give you alternative methods to cope with the symptoms and some of the frustrations that people may have. Little did we know that actually it was a life changer. When I got to Sardinia, she said, right, let's wean you down completely now because you've done it gradually. And then I went start to start. And you off it completely now? Still too. I'm a bit scared. And she changed your diet as well, I think. Oh, I tried, but then I had the cancer and everything else, so I've just been the thought to myself, you only live once. <laughs> Goodness. I'm fine. I had the full hysterectomy and appendix out, and I'm on surveillance every six months. Was that the trigger for coming back to yourself? I think so. Well, obviously, when my mind was in the right mindset and then I was on two milligrams, 
and I knew Jason was there supporting me and my kids. I felt right now is your time to be how you, you used to be and gradually build your, your bubbly personality back up. Kirsty, reflecting now on that terrible time, do you feel a sense of anger or are you at sort of peace with it now? I'm not angry because I think there's anger gets you nowhere. I just think when you're diagnosed, I think like Jay said, you need more support, you need more advice. And I don't think going straight into the medication is the way forward. Like new people who come to our group, I say to them, try not to go on medication straight away. Try mindfulness, try exercise, try diet, try as much as you can to come up, stay away from the medication. And then gradually start the medication slowly. Don't let the specialists keep increasing it. I mean, how are you together now? You look like a great... Amazing. I'm, we're made, it's made us so much stronger. It's still a pain in the arse, but yeah, she's great. <laughs> so, of course, the uh, problem started with the shopping, Gillian. Yeah, I mean, I heard that and it was slightly scary. Was and she was on the same list of drugs as I was on. That was absolutely terrifying. Sounds like a case of negligence. Exactly, that, that you should be put on these drugs. And we've all been warned, sometimes excessively, as you said, Julie, yes. about the side effects. I cannot understand why the doctors did not notice that this was going on. It's very difficult to understand, but medical negligence happens all the time. And I suppose it is difficult to disentangle what might be personality trait. I mean, after all, the guy she went off with also went off and he didn't mm. have Parkinson's or any medicines. People mm. do these sort of things. So trying to identify whether it's the drugs, the Parkinson's, mm. or just... But, the, but her husband was convinced it wasn't her, wasn't he? No, sure, sure. Well, we yeah. have with us my Parkinson's nurse, Joe Bomley, who is a brilliant nurse, I have to say. But it's, it's about when we see these experts, what do we tell them? Do we tell them about the embarrassing stuff? Do we have difficulty telling them? And how do you, Joe, find out the information that you need to know if you've got pe people who are embarrassed about telling you things? I think it's about building up that relationship, isn't it? It's about building up that relationship with your patient and also the people around you, so the, the family members, the spouses, and building up that relationship with them right from the beginning because hopefully that will help people to be more open and sharing about any experiences they do have, whether it's side effects to medication or changes in their, whether their physical function or their, what we call the non-motor symptoms that people have. Certainly when I see people for the very first time, they've already started medication. And the first thing I always do with them is we go through everything from the basics. So we go through the letter, the first letter that their consultant did. We go through word by word line by line go through all the terminology and we go through the side effects of any medication that they're put on and you're right it's a very embarrassing problem is is in this sort of this impulsive okay, control behavior presumably all these medications are titrated up gradually yeah. So one should know if a problem is arising yeah. and then you've, you've gone beyond the limit, titration limit, and you reduce it. That is, in fact, what happened to me on the agonist. I was being titrated up and then it went up a bit further and I began having very strange thoughts and it was brought down to a level where I have no strange thoughts. So it's not clear to me why there are these repeated incidences of people mm. suffering from side effects of this medication. You know, a lot of people are <clears throat> really 
you know, this is a, is very embarrassing. Some people are not even sharing this with their own loved ones. Mm-hmm. And, and okay. the secrecy okay. around impulsive control behaviour, there's a lot of secrecy because it's that reward, that feeling of wanting to do something over and over again, but not actually telling the people, your loved ones, that you're doing that. So there's this secrecy part of the impulsive control behaviour that lures you to keep wanting to do it more and more. Again, this is all goes back to making sure that you have somebody in your health profession that you trust, whether it's your consultant, whether it's your nurse, but somebody that you can build up a really close relationship with. As long as you've been given them the information, you know the side effects, things that you wouldn't know about having Parkinson's and what comes with that. But having that education from your, from your nurse, from your healthcare professional to know what to look for. Some of these problems, lots and lots of people have. But when you're experiencing it yourself, it's really frightening. And you sometimes feel this, you know, this shame sometimes. People go, I just feel really shamed telling you this, Joe. Or I'm so embarrassed. It shouldn't be. You shouldn't be feeling embarrassed. What sort of things have you heard? Well, hypersexual behaviour. You know, things that are are completely out of the norm for them. Lots of different, obviously lots of different stories. We're different from different people. But, you know, these are things that are out of character quite often for people. How do you detect that they've got these problems if they're so embarrassed they don't want to tell you about them? So I always try and explain to people what the drugs do, how they work, because I think this is important. You need to know what Parkinson's actually is, even in the basic way of knowing what Parkinson's is, and then knowing about what the drugs actually do, how the drugs work. So we know that dopamine agonists work on like the reward centre of the brain. But all the drugs that we use in Parkinson's, you know, particularly levodopa and dopamine agonists, they can all come with these risks of impulsive control behaviour. Of all your patients, what percentage do you think are telling you everything and what percentage are not? Well, only know the ones that will yeah. tell me. Yeah, you cannot. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't really answer, answer that. that. But you do know, you I... suspect that a lot of people are holding stuff back? I think so, but I think I don't discharge people in my caseload. So they're with me from the day they're diagnosed all the way through. And we always have those conversations. So Paul going on about it, you know, when you're talking about your bowels, you know, I've had my bowels open, my bowels all, you know, this is, yeah, we're going back (laughs) to that, okay. But it's because they're the things I ask every time. And I always ask people if they're on, particularly on dopamine agonists, you know, is there any changes with your behaviour? Because I'm so open about that. Surely their loved ones would notice atypical behaviour. Well, you'd hope to think so, but do they know to look out for that? That needs to be made very clear at diagnosis to the partner. Partners. Yes, yeah. it does. Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Do you always see couples together? Or do you... I try and encourage people to come together. Sometimes it's not always possible if I've got young people who one of them's working and they can't be there, they've got childcare. But ideally, I quite like to see people together. And sometimes I do see people, so spouses on their own, as long as I've got the permission from the person with the Parkinson's. Apparently 25% of people taking these medications suffer impulse control disorder to some degree or another. It's much higher than that, I reckon. I think so. There are very, very few Parkinson's nurses around. And there are very few people, and I've, I've still have a conversation with a Parkinson's nurse. Mm. Mm. I think, you know, a lot of people do feel more comfortable. As nurses, we're, these, we're deemed as being these people that are very holistic in their approach to care, very empathetic, very caring. And all our, you know, our consultants are as well. But I think people are probably a little bit more 
reassured and more confident in perhaps talking about the non-motor symptoms. So they'll often go and see their consultant to talk about their motor symptoms, their physical aspects of their Parkinson's, but they don't always feel comfortable talking about their non-motor symptoms. So a lot of my job really is focusing on these non-motor symptoms and the impulsive control behaviour being, being mm. one of them. And yeah. sometimes it's to do with the length of time between the visits, isn't it? Yeah. Do you encourage people to, if they have a crisis or, or yeah. a difficulty? So there's always open access to, well, obviously to me, in that pe- we see people in between their hospital appointments, but they have a telephone number, an email address. We can do video calls. That's amazing because the, the, the most valuable thing on earth is your doctor's email address, which they they guard as if it yeah. was the yeah. state yeah. secret. Because it's whatever works for you. I mean, we it doesn't matter to us how you get in touch with us. And, you know, one of the good things that came out of COVID is actually we are doing you know we do more video calls now with patients mm. so when they phone up and say can I speak to Joe you know we can offer them a telephone call or we can offer them a video call for us it makes no difference but at that um, point they've already acknowledged they've got a problem haven't they if they want to talk to you about it yeah yeah and the sort of scary well, think, thing I suppose is the people who don't and yeah. think it's really bad but I think we as nurses and as health professionals need to help prompt people to feel comfortable to tell us. The problem is, if you see sorry, someone different every single time, mm. hard to build up a relationship, isn't yeah. it? And they're just scanning your notes for something. Yeah. If yeah. someone is put on an agonist for the first time, shouldn't they actually at least get a call a month or so in to say, how's it going? I think one of the things is we also try and help people to self-manage and be aware of of the symptoms and the side effects. So people know, when obviously they see me, if they're put on any medication... If they have any problems or any concerns, they can just call me, whether that's, you know, a few days later. Some people even go and see their consultant. And I think, you know, they they will often phone me and say, oh, I've just been to see Dr. X and they're going to put me on this drug. But I'm really not sure about it. I was told very clearly by Professor Chowdhury when he put me on the agonist, he said, I'm going to be gradually increasing it. And you must tell me if you have any atypical thoughts. Yeah. But you're a very friendly persona, uh, Joe. You're extre- you're extremely warm and welcoming. Is that trained into you, or is it just natural? My approach to the way I am with my patients is how I would want my parents to be treated, you know, and have that support. If they were in, in your situation, I would want for them to have the same support. It'd be quite interesting to go around. Who sees a Parkinson's nurse amongst us? I do. I see mine twice in a year. Um, once in 12 years. <laughs> Well, I'm about to get a new one, which I'm pleased about. That's extraordinary, isn't it? I, I see Joe every... Yeah, but I know see yeah. Joe, but I'm also, uh, what frequency? I see Joe once a year, so and then I see six months' intervals, you know, the neurologist or Joe. Uh, but I feel I can phone Joe and get in touch with her if I need to. I know mine and has... And I know she's monitoring me because she's sort of <laughs> knew all about the DVS operation. I know mine yeah. has 500 people on her books. How many do you have on yours? Well, I used to have about just over 600. It's come down a little bit. But but like you say, with Paul, you know, some people I only see once a year. They see their consultants in between that time. But they know they can just phone me up if they have a problem or they've got a query. And it can be something really really small and something that's really fixable over the telephone or we might say actually let's come on let's bring you into the community clinic in my clinic and we'll have a 
a proper chat face to face. And some patients I see monthly. It, and it sometimes really they presumably varies. they can think it's something small, but yeah. in fact it might yeah. actually be quite significant. And all the patients that we have, we as part of their appointment letter system that they get sent out, they have, I don't know whether you normally bring your list of things with you, Paul, but our patients get given a, a questions to ask your nurse sheet. So these are like prompts. You don't have to fill it in. It's not a questionnaire. It's just basically it's like a, a, a notes list of things. And people fill that in and that just prompts them to think about some of the questions that they might have that they might think is silly or they're too embarrassed to ask. But because yeah. it's there in writing, it's it kind a, of helps. I think you have to be super careful with those things as well. I'm sure you are because you seem incredibly sensitive. But I mean, I almost sort of leapt under a boss or something after one of those lists because I was given a list when I was probably a year into the diagnosis. You know, they said, fill this out while you wait for the consultant. And it started with, are you singly incontinent? Are you doubly incontinent? Do you drool? Do you Have you, you know, forgotten this, that and the other? And I was one year in, so mm. I didn't have any of these things. No, this, But this... seeing this list was so utterly yeah. terrifying. I just thought, I'm going to end this now. I cannot face yeah. going through this bit by bit. Mm. So I think lists per se useful if they're given by somebody who knows you, but can be terrifying. Yeah, and yeah. we have to be really, you know, and yeah. you're right, absolutely right. I mean, our lists, you know, we've shown our patients and we say, is there anything else? I've just, I'm doing my dissertation at the moment and we're doing a, I'm, I've just done a questionnaire. And one of those, it's a service evaluation and it's, it's asking patients, what do you think of that questions to ask your nurse? And this isn't just for Parkinson's. Right. So in our service, we have lots of other groups of neurological conditions that we support and they all get the same list. So it's not, you know, like a non-motor symptom questionnaire that you're right, perhaps right, referring right. to. Yep. It's much more generalised. It's more about symptoms, medication, financial advice benefits because mm. this mm. prompts them to think, well, actually, you know, I'm, you know, 40 and, you know, are there any financial benefits that I'm not even entitled to? So that's, it's really kept very basic and nobody has to fill it in. It's not compulsory. But some of our patients use it. It's obvious that Paul derives enormous benefit from his relationship with you. But the great majority of Parkinson's sufferers in this country do not see a Parkinson's nurse. You're like a sort of snow leopard. You're extremely (laughs) rare. I, I, I just think it's absolutely iniquitous that... There are swathes of the country that are deserts as far as the Parkinson's nurses mm. are concerned. And also, it's very important that I don't feel judged. You know, if I say yeah. something embarrassing or difficult, or like <laughs> Kirsty and Jason, I don't, I'm not judging them. And it's important that we as people with Parkinson's, whatever we've done, whatever stupid things, whatever... We don't judge you, Paul. We don't so. judge <laughs> We shouldn't feel judged. We shouldn't feel that think people think less of us because we have constipation or... Shouldn't feel embarrassed. Shouldn't feel and embarrassed. No. <laughs> and there was a research paper done in about 2020 that I was looking at. It says 85% of people felt embarrassed by having Parkinson's, which I think is, is awful. God. You know, and 26% felt this feeling of shame. That shouldn't be the case. It really shouldn't be the case. And it's about a mutual partnership between you as a person with Parkinson's and me as, as a nurse, your nurse, to have that relationship so that, you know, you don't feel that embarrassment or shame because what you might be experiencing, there'll be lots of other people feeling the They're very complex, the feelings. I mean, as Jeremy mm. once said... It's this sort of sense of grave discomfort of being pitied. Mm. And it, it's, it's so true. It's a, sort of a combination of embarrassment and shame because you feel that they're looking at you. 
Well, not being the person you were and before and all that, it's exactly. very, yeah, it's very, very complicated. complicated. Thank you very much indeed, Jen. No, you're welcome. Thank and you I for think, having me. And I think the important thing Thank is Thank you that, for coming. And I think the important thing is that everybody who's listening, those with Parkinson's and their carers, should get out there and talk about the embarrassing stuff because um, well, it'll give us all a good giggle, won't it? Up to a point, <laughs> Lord Copper. <laughs> You've been listening to Movers and Shakers, a podcast about living with Parkinson's. The show is sponsored by Judge Nick Mostyn's Old Chambers and by the generous contributions of private donors. The show is produced by Nick Hilton for Podo. Our theme music is by Alex Stubbs and cover artwork by Till Lucat. Please subscribe to get new episodes straight into your podcast app and do rate and review if you enjoyed the show. We have a brand new all singing, all dancing website with lots more information about each episode. You will find it at www.moversandshakerspodcast.com. And please email any thoughts or questions to feedback at moversandshakerspodcast.com. See you next week. <laughs>